0: This podcast contains adult themes and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised.
1: A commercial-free version of this podcast is available on Patreon. For $1 per month, patreon.com forward slash Podcast. I'm Renee, and this is Beyond Contempt True Crime. This episode was shorter than I would have hoped for, but I didn't want to give a blow-by-blow analysis of all the horrific details because there were so many victims killed hastily. There were a few silver linings to this terrible case. It was nice to see all the separate local police agencies work together and share information and get this solved. Even though the perpetrator killed many women in a short time frame, authorities caught him reasonably quick. It was fantastic that one of the few survivors came out of this situation and created a positive life for herself. Her story was very similar to Kara Robinson, who survived a serial killer back in Episode 7. And lastly, this case shows that we have a lot to learn about the impact of brain injuries and neurological deficits in serial killers. You're listening to Episode 19, Bobby Joe Long. Robert Joseph Long was born on October 14, 1953, in Canova, West Virginia, to parents Luella and Joe Long. Canova is a small city that only spans 1.6 square miles and has a population barely over 3,000. This city is about two hours east of Lexington. The family didn't remain in Canova long because Bobby's parents divorced when he was two and he moved to Florida with his mother. His parents had a bit of a dysfunctional relationship. They remarried when he was seven but divorced again by the time he turned 10. Bobby had multiple accidents and sustained many head injuries as a young child. At age four, he was pulled under by a strong wave at the beach and almost drowned. Bobby later blamed his mother for the incident and claimed she was looking at men instead of watching her son. At age five, he fell from a swing, was knocked unconscious, and a stick penetrated his eyelid. At age six, Bobby was thrown from his bike after he hit a parked car, which resulted in a severe concussion and the loss of several teeth. In 1971, at age seven, He was hit twice by a car. That spring he hit his face on a car bumper, was knocked unconscious, and was hospitalized. In fall, Bobby darted in front of a car and almost died. He substantially injured his teeth and misaligned his jaw. Around age eight, Bobby fell from a pony, which left him dizzy and nauseated for weeks. At age nine, he fell off a fence which required several stitches to the side of his head. Besides all the bad luck with injuries, Bobby was born with Kleinfelter syndrome. People with this syndrome have an extra X chromosome and experience a variety of symptoms, including smaller testicles that don't function properly, poor coordination, less body hair, breast growth, and learning difficulties. For Bobby, one symptom from the syndrome was gynecomastia, which meant he had enlarged breasts, much like a female would have. He was bullied because of this, and at age 13 had surgery to remove the extra breast tissue. Bobby failed the first grade, but it wasn't clear if his Klinefelter syndrome played a role. The signs of trouble surfaced for a young Bobby Joe Long around the age of 13. He killed their family dog by shooting a twenty-two caliber bullet into her vagina. Bobby was upset that the dog received pieces of filet mignon while his mother gave him a hamburger. He slept in his mother's bed from age 10 to 13. She was a poor single mom and could only afford one-room apartments. According to Bobby, his mom worked at a bar where she was scantily clad and wore inappropriate clothing. He said she often brought home a multitude of men to her bed. In retrospect, this is where Bobby Joe Long's hatred of women took off. In 1970, he was arrested for stealing and reportedly got violent with his mother. At age 17, he dropped out of the 10th grade twice. He re-enrolled at age 18, but was expelled before he completed that grade. In 1971, Bobby was accused of raping a girl, but it was dismissed due to lack of evidence. There were some indications that the girl was not being truthful, but given the person Bobby would become, it might have been a legitimate claim. At age 19, Bobby had been working as an electrician's assistant for two years. He enlisted in the Army and was stationed at the Homestead Air Force Base in Florida. During that time, he worked on becoming a certified electrician and earned his GED. In 1974, Bobby was 21 when he married his high school girlfriend, Cynthia. They had known each other for a long time and met when Bobby was 13. The pair had two children during their short marriage. Right after they were married, Bobby was in a serious accident in February 1974. He was riding his motorcycle at 65 miles per hour. When an elderly man driving a car did not see him and pulled out, Bobby was in the hospital for weeks. Besides having another serious head injury, he almost lost one of his legs. Bobby's sex drive increased noticeably while he was in the hospital, which was another side effect of this accident. He demanded sex from Cynthia during every hospital visit. After he left the hospital, Bobby wasn't working and was also discharged from the army. With all this free time on his hands, He began using the classified ads to find women to satisfy his increased sex drive. His wife, Cynthia, said that there was a marked change in his personality after the accident. He was a short tempered person, but evolved into a person who was physically violent. Cynthia became the target of her husband's verbal and physical abuse. Later in 1974, Bobby was arrested for battering his wife. During 1978 and 1979, he became a certified electrician, received an associate's degree in x-ray technology from Broward County Community College, and took a job as an x-ray technician. In 1980, Cynthia filed for divorce. Bobby moved in with a friend named Susan Raplagel, who later accused Long of rape and battery. In 1981, he was convicted on those charges, but was given a new trial after winning an appeal. In his new trial, there was not sufficient evidence of the rape because a witness came forward and stated that the victim gave Long consent. They still found him guilty of the battery in 1983. In fall 1983, Long was charged with sending an inappropriate and sexually charged letter to a 12-year-old Florida girl. The letter contained photos of people in sexual positions, and the girl was the daughter of a doctor Long worked with at the hospital. He was caught after calling her and the police traced the call back to him. He pled no contest, paid less than $100 in court fees, and only served two days in jail with six months of probation. In March 1984, Long responded to a newspaper ad of a woman selling her house. He pulled a gun, raped her, and stole her jewelry. This was how he financially supported himself during this time period because he was unemployed. He looked at classified ads for anything from small appliances to listings for homes. He targeted these women because he suspected their husbands would be at work. Long would rape women from the ads on a near-daily basis, and in the evenings he would pick up sex workers. Many of the women worked at the Sly Fox Lounge, or walked the strip on North Nebraska Avenue, where they found work. On March 27, 1984, Long committed his first murder of 20-year-old sex worker Artis Wick. Her body wouldn't be found until November of that year. Long claimed after he picked her up and raped her, he did not feel satisfied. This set him off, and he strangled her. Unfortunately, Long was never charged with her murder, even though the FBI and the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office attributed the crime to him. In April 1984, Long kidnapped Mary Hicks and forced her to drive him in her Jaguar Roadster. She intentionally crashed her car to escape the situation, Mary whipped the steering wheel one way, then quickly turned it the other way, causing the car to roll several times. When they both got out of the car, Long pointed a gun at her. Mary screamed, causing him to run away. Long was convicted of the crime, but only had to pay $1,500 in damages for the car and was placed on six months probation. In May 1984, Long raped and murdered a 20-year-old Laotian woman who recently quit her job as an exotic dancer at the Sly Fox Lounge in Tampa Bay. She often went by the Americanized name of Lana Long. She was from Los Angeles and had only been in Florida for a few months. Long picked her up when he was walking down the street and forced her into his car with a knife. He took her to a wooded area where he raped, beat, and strangled her. Lana's nude body was found nine days later with the rope still around her neck. A silk cloth had been used to gag her. Her hips were broken and legs were staged at right angles in relation to her body. Evidence found at the scene included tire impressions and a single red strand determined to be a carpet fiber. The fiber ended up being a key piece of evidence as it was the link between the victim and Long's car. It was also noted that one tire on the car differed from the other three. On May 27, 1984, the body of 22-year-old sex worker Michelle Sims was discovered on a lover's lane with her throat slashed. She put up a significant fight while she was being strangled and sustained blows to her head. Michelle's jugular vein was severed so deeply with a knife she was nearly decapitated. Michelle's identity was only confirmed after police created a composite drawing, which led to her identification. Michelle was found 8 to 10 hours after her murder. Police found brown, medium-length Caucasian hairs, which they thought were from the perpetrator's head. They found tire impressions and red carpet fibers at the crime scene. Police immediately suspected that Michelle's murder was related to Lana Long's murder. Semen stains were present, so police now had a DNA profile to work with. On June 8, 1984, Elizabeth Loudenbeck's mother reported her missing when she went on a walk and never returned. Long abducted, raped, and sodomized 22-year-old Elizabeth Loudenbeck. She hung out on the North Nebraska Avenue Strip but did not fit the profile of the other women who had been murdered. Elizabeth was a quiet, shy bookworm who did not perform sex work. She lived at home with her family and worked on an assembly line. According to Long, Elizabeth accepted a ride from him. When they got back into the car after he raped her, she couldn't stop crying. This angered Long, so he killed her. Elizabeth was found fully clothed while all the other victims were found nude, which lent credibility to Long's account. He stole the debit card from her wallet. The PIN number was written on the card, so he made several withdrawals from her account. Elizabeth's body was found badly decomposed and weighed only 25 pounds a few weeks later when she was discovered on June 24. She was the fifth deceased woman found in rural eastern Hillsborough County within a few months' time. Elizabeth was not initially connected with the other Long murder cases because the FBI analysts believe that the red carpet fibers found at the scene of her crime differed from the other fibers found previously. She didn't fit the profile of being a dancer, sex worker, or hitchhiker. Elizabeth's murder would later be connected to Long only after similar fibers turned up at later crime scenes. A few months passed, and there had been no murders. Police thought maybe the killer passed away or was arrested for another crime. On September 7, 1984, 21-year-old Vicki Elliott went missing. She worked nights at the Ramada Inn coffee shop and carried a pair of scissors for her protection. Vicki's skeletal remains were not found until after Long's arrest when he told police where she was located. He broke her hyoid bone. The hyoid bone is located in the mid-neck and allows us to breathe, swallow, and speak. There were red carpet fibers present, just like all the previous crime scenes. The scissors that Vicky carried for her protection were found in her vagina. On September 30, 1984, Long picked up 18-year-old Chanel Williams. After he raped her in his car, he tried to strangle her, but Chanel was strong and athletic. She fought back, which caused Long to lose his temper. He shot Chanel in the back of the head, then tossed her and her clothes out of his car. When Chanel was found on October 7, 1984, police asked the FBI to create a criminal personality profile. The FBI team at Quantico believed the perpetrator was a pathological liar who was divorced. Torturing animals, wetting the bed, and setting fires were part of his childhood. The killer was manipulative and impulsive, but did not act recklessly. The FBI team thought he had trouble accepting authority, which made it difficult for him to hold a job. The FBI believed that the victim's lifestyle made them susceptible to being approached by the killer, who likely assumed that the women wouldn't be immediately missed. They thought that the Lana Long and Elizabeth Sims murders were connected. Since Chanel was African American and was murdered by gunshot and not strangulation, the FBI determined that her case was not related to the others. Evidence found at the crime scene included red carpet fibers and a brown Caucasian pubic hair. The police found semen, but it was a different profile as compared to previously collected evidence. Since Chanel was a sex worker, law enforcement attributed the differing DNA profile to her line of work. In October 1984, police finally announced they were looking for a serial killer, but withheld all the carpet fiber evidence from the public. They feared the killer might dump his car. Long raped and killed 22-year-old sex worker Kimberly Hoops. Her body was discovered on October 31st. Kimberly was found nude and mummified with a black cloth choker around her neck that was used to strangle her. Due to exposure to the elements, there was not much collectible forensic evidence. Kimberly was not identified until after Long's arrest. Some of her hairs were eventually found in his car. On October 13th, 1984, Long picked up 28 year old sex worker Karen Drin's friend, who had a known drug problem. They negotiated $47 for a sex act because that was the exact amount she needed for her next hit of drugs. Long raped and strangled her. Karen's body was found the next day. Detectives immediately believed this murder was related to the others because of the similarities in the ligatures. At the medical examiner's office, red carpet fibers were found. During this time, Every homicide detective from the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office was assigned to the murders. All other cases for the county were assigned to non homicide detectives. Six officers were exclusively assigned to watch the North Nebraska Avenue strip since so many victims were last seen alive there. The department even bought a personal computer solely for the purpose of working this case. Evidence from Karen's homicide was sent straight to the FBI. They confirmed the ligature knots were like the ones in the other crimes. A brawn Caucasian pubic hair and semen were found on a bedspread, which eventually matched Long. There were also gold acrylic fibers and red carpet fibers, which traced back to Long. On November 6, 1984, an unidentified body was found in Pasco County. 18-year-old sex worker Virginia Johnson was not reported missing until after Long's arrest. Like the other women, she worked the North Nebraska Avenue Strip. Virginia was the only victim found outside of Hillsborough County. Her body was skeletonized with ligatures still intact. Police immediately thought her murder was connected to the others, and they could identify Virginia based on dental records. On November 11, 21-year-old Sly Fox lounge dancer Kim Swan was killed. She hung around the North Nebraska Avenue Strip since she was 15. Her body was found in Tampa City, which was slightly outside of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office jurisdiction. When the Tampa City Police Department arrived on the scene, they immediately called their colleagues from Hillsborough. There were ligature marks, tire impressions, and red carpet fibers, which matched those found at the other crime scenes. The perpetrator had also defecated on the victim's shirt. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Beyond Contempt True Crime Is sponsored by Podcorn, the easy to use marketplace designed to help podcasters get sponsorship opportunities on their terms. I've been using Podcorn for a few weeks now, and it's simple to use. You log in and scroll through the many advertisers. Send them a message and tell them why your podcast would be a great place for their advertisement. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters set their own rates and directly collaborate with brands without any exclusivities. This marketplace gives podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn will support you every step of the way to ensure you're protected and compensated for work that you do for brands. Explore sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast by clicking the link in my show notes to sign up for Podcorn. Go to podcorn.com to get signed up today. And now... Back to the show. Two Lucky Victims Survived. Linda Natal was assaulted in May 1984 when her husband posted a newspaper ad selling some of the family's furniture. Long responded to the advertisement and went to their Palm Harbor home. He raped Linda, the stay-at-home mom, with her one-year-old daughter and four-year-old son in the house. Seventeen-year-old Lisa McVeigh was assaulted on November 3, 1984. She had a rough life bouncing from foster home to foster home, where she experienced both physical and sexual abuse. Her mom was an alcoholic and drug addict, who couldn't provide adequate care for her daughter. Lisa moved in with her grandmother. Over a three-year period, her grandmother's boyfriend held a gun to her head every time he molested her. Lisa was significantly depressed. On November 3rd, she decided she was going to end her life after her shift at work. Lisa even had a suicide note written. She worked at a Krispy Kreme Donut Shop and finished her double shift at 2 a.m. A co-worker offered her a ride, but she decided to pedal her bike home. As Lisa rode past a church... A man jumped out from behind a parked car and knocked her off her bike. Before she knew it, there was a gun pressed into her temple. She was dragged into the car. The man immediately made Lisa strip and perform a sexual act. Then he tied and blindfolded her, but she could still see. Lisa noticed the red carpet on the floor and the word Magnum on the dashboard. She estimated he had been driving for 30 minutes when the car stopped. Lisa could tell she was in a wooded area. She counted the number of steps to the apartment door and noted it smelled very new. Long took her ligatures and blindfold off and made her take a shower with him. It was almost as if he was living out a fantasy of Lisa being his girlfriend. Long said he wished he could have met Lisa under different circumstances. When Lisa asked what his intentions were, Long said he was getting back at women because he went through a bad breakup recently. This woman's name was Elsie Kelly, and she dated Long from August 1983 to April 1984. She was a nurse he met when they both worked at a hospital. Long lavished her with all kinds of jewelry—diamond rings, gold necklaces, and silver bracelets. Elsie was unaware that Long procured all the jewelry from the women he had been raping and robbing. She was a born-again Christian, and he even attended church with her a few times. They broke up when he discovered she started dating someone else. Long even told his mother that he was hurting. And there were no good women left in the world. Lisa's street smarts, combined with the personal information Long bestowed on her, plus her history of sexual abuse, gave her the skills she needed to survive this horrific encounter. When she was brutally and repeatedly raped, she didn't fight it. Lisa left fingerprints on every surface possible during this 26-hour nightmare. She figured if Long killed her, there would at least be a minimum level of evidence for authorities to find. Lisa could observe details about the perpetrator's features. He made Lisa put her hands on his face. She noted he was clean-cut with a mustache and short hair. His face had pockmarks and his ears were small. When Lisa began crying, he told her to stop and to not make him kill her. So with everything she had, she stopped crying. After sleeping for a while, Long woke up and asked Lisa what he should do with her. She told him that she wanted to be his girlfriend. She would take care of him, and people did not have to know how they met. He felt sorry for Lisa when she mentioned that her dad wasn't doing well because of experiencing several heart attacks. Long told her that he couldn't keep her, but he would drop her off by her home. They got in the car, and he drove them to an ATM. After Long got back in the car, they started driving again. He suddenly became angry with Lisa and yelled at her, but surprisingly, she convinced him to drop her off. Long pulled over, opened the door, gave her a hug, kissed her on the forehead, and drove away. Lisa then made her way to the police station and provided all the details from her ordeal, from the fingerprints she left behind to the word Magnum on the dashboard to the one tire on the car that differed from the rest. The fibers found on Lisa's clothes matched those from the other cases. Since all the local agencies were working together, they formed a task force with the FBI. There were 50 sex crime and homicide officers working on the squad. One team looked up bank records to hone in on the perpetrator's ATM withdrawal, while another team was looking up records to see who owned a Dodge Magnum. Each team came up with the name Robert Joseph Long. Now that they had his name, police went out to track him down. On November 15, 1984, Long was pulled over when police noticed he had a car similar to the one described by Lisa McVeigh. They made up a lie and told Long a car similar to his was involved in a hit-and-run. Police asked to search his vehicle, but Long declined and did not provide a reason. He allowed police to photograph him and his car. Long was released due to lack of evidence, but police kept him under surveillance. Two hours after he was stopped, Long was agitated and called detectives. He wanted to know if they found the person who did the hit-and-run. Long was irritated that police had pulled him over and demanded to be notified when they found the person who committed the crime. They placed Long's photo in a lineup for Lisa, and she confirmed he was the perpetrator. On November 16, 1984, After getting the proper search and arrest warrants, Long was arrested outside of a movie theater. It only took 36 hours after the task force formation to bring him into police custody. Lisa McVeigh's story didn't stop with her surviving the horrible encounter with Long. In 2005, she got another chance at life and became a Hillsborough County Sheriff's Deputy. Lisa has worked as a school resource officer and advocates for the welfare of children who were abused. She's also married with children. During his police interrogation, Long confessed to murdering at least eight women, but only after he was told about all the physical evidence against him including the fact that his tires matched the impressions perfectly at each crime scene and the red carpet fibers from the victims matched his car. When he described the events that took place with each murder victim, he was not regretful or remorseful. Long's tone was that of someone who was indifferent. In his apartment, they found Lisa's barrette, which she had intentionally left as a clue for law enforcement. They found pieces of women's clothing that Long had kept as trophies. In a dumpster outside of his apartment, Police found photos of nude women, including photos of Long raping his victims. His face was not showing in some of the photos, but there was a letter on the driver's seat where you could see Robert J. Long, 5802 East Fowler Avenue, Tampa, Florida. When asked what he did to prepare for an abduction, Long said he bought 20 to 30 feet of rope from Kmart. He had no pre-plan and picked his victims at random. They were dealt an unlucky hand when they crossed Long's path that day. He figured he would get caught after he let Lisa go. Long felt she was special and did not want to kill her. When dancers from the Sly Fox Lounge were interviewed, they remembered Long patronizing the establishment. He was never suspected because he was always polite with the staff. Police interviewed one of Long's co-workers from when he worked as an x-ray technician. The woman said Long made her uncomfortable and perpetually talked about sex. Long also did not react well to his female supervisors. Bobby Joe Long was dubbed the classified ad rapist. There were different reported time frames from when he began raping women. Long claims that the rapes started in 1975 or 1976. Police claim the rape started in 1980 in Fort Lauderdale, Ocala, Miami, and Dade County areas. He committed at least 50 rapes for which he was never prosecuted because the statute of limitations had expired. On November 18, 1984, Long appeared before County Judge Perry Little, at which time he was charged with eight counts of murder and sexual battery and nine counts of kidnapping. He was also charged with violating his probation from April 1984. The Green River Task Force also met with Long, and he was eliminated as a suspect in the Green River murders. Several weeks after the arrest, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office held a press conference, attended by agencies from all over the state. This conference eventually led to Miami area police clearing dozens of rapes. On February 11, 1985, Long underwent court-ordered psychiatric evaluations where he was classified as a sexual sadist. Dr. John Money documented temporal lobe epilepsy that induced an altered state of consciousness. Long reported that after he killed his victims, he slept heavily and woke up imagining the events happened in a dream. He would then read the details of his crimes in the paper and think that the women were sluts who deserved what they got. Dr. Robert Berlin diagnosed Long with Inherited Bipolar Disorder or Manic Depressive Psychosis and an organic personality syndrome caused by scar tissue to the brain from all of his previous head trauma. Another clinician found no evidence of mental illness or disease, apart from severe antisocial personality disorder. In April 1985, the first trial for the murder of Virginia Johnson began. Media heavily covered the event. The strongest evidence was not only Long's confession, but the physical evidence of hair and fibers that linked him to the crime. The defense tried to use the brain injuries and neurological issues to garner leniency from the jury, but they were not sympathetic. Long was found guilty. The Hillsborough County State Attorney's Office and the Office of the Public Defender worked out a plea bargain for the eight homicides and the abduction of Lisa McVeigh. On September 24, 1985, Long pled guilty to all the crimes and was given 26 life sentences without the possibility of parole, which amounted to 693 years. He also received seven life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years. The state retained the right to seek the death penalty in the case of Michelle Sims. Her case was exempt from the plea bargain because of the brutality of her murder and the fact that it contained the strongest forensic evidence. In July 1986, after the penalty phase of Michelle Sims' case concluded, Long was sentenced to death via Florida's electric chair. On September 2, 1986, Long appealed to the Florida State Supreme Court. They examined whether the trial court erred by denying Long's motion to vacate his plea agreement and whether the use of prior convictions that were later vacated by the court had unfairly biased the sentencing. The Supreme Court agreed that using the prior convictions were aggravating factors and it harmed his court case. Long's case was remanded to the circuit court with order to acquit. On August 3, 1989, a direct appeal to Florida State Supreme Court examined whether the court erred in denying Long's motion to withdraw his guilty pleas and allowed hearsay evidence from two detectives about details of two other rapes as evidence of aggravating violence. The court found that any errors were harmless and reaffirmed the convictions. Long was given a 5-year sentence, 499 year sentences, 28 life sentences, and one death sentence. On May 23, 2019, 65-year-old Robert Joseph Long, Florida Department of Corrections inmate number 494041, ate his last meal that morning, which consisted of a roast beef sandwich, french fries, bacon, and a soda. He was executed by lethal injection and was pronounced deceased at 6.55 p.m. Long had originally been sentenced to die in the electric chair, but that method was deemed cruel and was banned. His execution was witnessed by some of the family members of the victims and by survivors Linda Natal and Lisa McVeigh Noland. Lisa said that if she could say anything to Long, she would thank him for choosing her and not another 17-year-old girl. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Beyond Contempt. Please visit beyondcontemptpodcast.com for links to the sources used in this episode. This episode was researched by Laura Delgado. Script writing, editing, and all audio production were performed by me. If you like the show, please leave me a favorable review in Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, everyone.
0: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.